We're back in Isaiah chapter 40 now. And uh, I am actually glad to be home for a while. Hopefully a good long while so I can get back into the swing of things with Isaiah on Wednesday nights and Acts on the weekends. Isaiah chapter 40. This is a wonderful passage of Scripture and I'd like for you all to stand and read it with me. We're going to read verses 1 through 5. But we're only going to study verses 1 and, uh, and 2. Verses 1 and 2. Uh, Tom and James, just so you'll know. We're only doing two verses tonight. Just thought I'd warn you up ahead. You know, just out in front. <laughs> Let's read Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 5, though. Let's read it together and aloud. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended that her iniquity is pardoned. For she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Father, we thank you for the uh, privilege of coming before your holy scriptures, to read them and to embrace them, to love them, and to learn from them. May you open our eyes and our ears, our hearts and our minds, so that we might receive everything you have for us tonight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. You all may be seated. Now, should a person desire to do an intense, critical study of the book of Isaiah, that person would have to deal with the seeming problems certain uh, uh, Isaiah manuscripts pose as to the authorship of the entire prophecy. For there are those critics of proper interpretation of Scripture that insist Isaiah was written by more than one author, author I should say, at different periods of time. For example, beginning with the 40th chapter of Isaiah through to the end is the portion which some attribute to, and I quote, the second Isaiah. You will read this in many commentator, uh, commenta- uh, commentaries, <laughs> by commentators, uh, and, and most of the time they'll make mention of it. If they're, if they're good uh, interpreters of, of the Word of God, they'll mention it, they'll go on into the study of the Word as if there was, of course, only one writer. But these critics of proper interpretation believe that some unknown and some unnamed prophet who who wrote after the Babylonian captivity penned this portion of Isaiah, and then it was incorporated into the book of Isaiah by a later editor. These are these suppositions they come up with. They, they, They try to figure out, well, you see, part of the problem is when you get past chapter 40, there are going to be certain certain prophecies that, that, that seem to have been written way before, way after, you know, written after they were actually stated, which is like, isn't that prophecy anyway? You understand what I'm saying? 
So they say, well, it had to have been written by somebody else. Now, wait a minute. If a prophet is given a word from God to look forward a, a number of years, then that's God giving him the vision to see that. So you see how some of these critics of Scripture uh, tend to uh, uh, interpret then passages uh, of, of Scripture. Now, while all of this may sound somewhat in intellectually captivating, let me just say that it is the New Testament in general, and the Lord Jesus in particular, that completely negates this theory and attributes this section to Isaiah, the prophet himself. So if you turn to Matthew chapter 8, this is your school work today, you know, so this is part of the school work, so turn to Matthew 8. And beginning at verse 16 and verse 17, it says, When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by whom? Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. And here Matthew is quoting from Isaiah 53, within this second portion of the book of Isaiah. It is not saying the second Isaiah or somebody else. No, it is saying it is spoken by Isaiah the prophet. So I think that's very clear. Turn to Luke chapter 4 and verse 17 as well. Luke 4:17, And you'll notice here as it speaks of this uh, passage where Jesus is in the synagogue and he's handed uh, the, the text. It says he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he opened the book, he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Quoting from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. Again, further into this portion of text that critics today would say, well, this is written by a second Isaiah, who was later on in the Babylonian captivity or after the Babylonian captivity, which Jesus probably could have commentated on when he would have said, well, you know, you all might think this was Isaiah who wrote this passage, but actually it wasn't. It was a second Isaiah. But he doesn't do that. He goes immediately into the passage and he reads it as if it came from Isaiah, the prophet. Okay. So we needn't trouble ourselves about such unfounded critical theories because the matter is settled for us by God's word. That matter is settled by God's word. There's nothing to worry about. And when we begin to see the prophecies, you begin to realize that God is good. And God is great. And God is powerful. And God can open up our eyes to see what is yet to come. Did he not do this years ago when, we, when people began to wonder, could there ever be a nation called Israel again? And it all through the scriptures, it says there will be a nation called Israel again. And here we see it. Alive and in living color. There in the midst of of the Middle East. What we learned on Sunday, if you were here for the, the movie Epicenter, is the epicenter of all the world. So with that in mind, we need to review then just a bit concerning the whole of the book of Isaiah. <clears throat> Isaiah has been called a Bible in miniature. 
in that there are 66 chapters in Isaiah and 66 books in the Bible. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah could be compared to the 39 books of the Old Testament, whereas both focus primarily on God's judgment of sin. The 27 chapters of the last part of Isaiah, which is, verse, which is chapters 40 through 66, the 27 chapters of the last part of Isaiah seem to parallel the 27 books of the New Testament since both carry an emphasis on the grace of God. And so the New Testament portion of Isaiah opens with John the Baptist's ministry, which is, by the way, verses 3 through 5 that we have just read earlier. And we'll get to that another time. But, but the, the New Testament opens with John the Baptist's ministry as a couple of the Gospels do. And it closes with new heavens and a new earth, as does the book of Revelation. So between all of this, between all of these pages, are references to Messiah, references to the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and King. But please remember that chapter divisions were not found in the original inspired text, but you have to agree that the comparison is quite interesting. Now, the tone, therefore, the tone, what we, what we had in the first 39 chapters, what was more of a tone of judgment, and I'll clarify a little bit more of that as we go on, but, but the tone now changes. And it obviously changes from chapter 40 on. It is a greater tone of hope, a greater tone that focuses on the coming Messiah and the fullness of the glory of God. Listen to the first two verses of this chapter. Comfort, yes, Comfort, my people, says, your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. It is important to remember where we left off. If you remember a couple of weeks ago when we were in chapter 39, this particular chapter announced the coming conquest of Jerusalem by the Babylonians as well as the nation of Judah being taken into exile. So this is what we saw at the very end of this uh, last chapter, chapter 39. So think about it. The last part of this chapter, coinciding with the Old Testament as it were, bringing the whole nation to a place of judgment. And, and, and then kind of pointing out to them, as we saw last time, that the Babylonians, who were at the time that Isaiah was writing this, was actually just a, a group of, 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 of small little uh, uh, groups of people, you know, gathered together, you know, as, as, as a people. But they were kind of gathering, you know, kind of gathering strength, gathering steam, as it were. As they began to conquer little places here and there, they, you know, it became a, a, an empire later on. But Isaiah's writing this to say there's, there's a greater coming than even Assyria who they had been worried about for the first 39 chapters of this, of this book. So think about the judgment and that this had to be a tremendous blow to the people of Judah to hear what they heard up to this point 
because they weren't even allowed the opportunity to celebrate the collapse of the Assyrian army at the hands of the Lord. Remember that it was the Lord who destroyed 185,000 of the Assyrians who were ready to pounce upon Jerusalem. He didn't allow it. Destroyed that portion of, of the Assyrian army. The Sennacherib takes off, goes back and gets killed by his own sons. But Judah had some major problems. Jerusalem had some major problems. For now they knew that a greater and more powerful aggressor was on the way. The Babylonians. That's, how, that's where we left off. We could even break the book of Isaiah down further to better understand the essence of chapters 40 through 66. Think of it in these terms. Chapters 1 through 35 are prophetic, mostly prophetic, and they focus on condemnation. Chapters 1 through 35 focused on condemnation. Chapters 36 through 39 are historic. And they center on the theme of amputation. Condemnation, amputation. What do I mean by amputation? The nation now would be taken away from the land. It would be taken into captivity to Babylon. They're warned of this. As a matter of fact, you just go back and read chapter 39. Short, short chapter. Verses 6 and 7 tell us that. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house, what your fathers have accumulated until this day, shall be carried to Babylon. Amputation. Amputated from their land. But then chapters 40 through 66 are now messianic. And they emphasize consolation. From condemnation to amputation to consolation. The word consolation is just another good word for comfort. God giving comfort to his people. Comfort. The word comfort here is a, is a powerful word. The word comfort derives, the, word, the English word comfort itself derives from the Latin confortis. With what? With Strength, fortis, with strength. It could even be defined as with a stronghold. Does the scripture, do the scriptures not say that the Lord is our stronghold in our times of trouble? So you see how the Lord himself is our comfort? So this word, it can refer to being strengthened emotionally, being strengthened physically, or being strengthened spiritually. That word comfort is a strong word where we can be strengthened emotionally, physically, or spiritually. Should you bear emotional sorrow? Or should you have physical suffering? Or should you be slumping spiritually? You are a candidate for comfort. You are a candidate for God's comfort. It is interesting that people attempt to get the comfort that they may need in a variety of ways. Take for example, you know, in, in other words, let me say that statement again. It's, it, it's interesting that people attempt to get comfort that they may need in a variety of ways. So here's the example I want to use today. How many of you have heard of comfort foods? We all got them. We like them. Let me tell you something about comfort foods. 
I'm getting hungry now, man. I just <laughs> should have brought it up. <laughs> the American Institute for Cancer Research, listen carefully. The American Institute for Cancer Research did a survey which they completed two months after the September 11 terror attacks. Two months after that. And it found that 33% of Americans had turned to eating more comfort foods such as fried chicken, steak, stews, and lasagna. A wide variety there. Some people rely on such foods, you see, to ease stress, to bring back positive memories. You see, that's why they're called comfort foods. But let me tell you this. Comfort foods are not a very permanent source of comfort. And then think about this. The more you get into comfort foods, the more you've got to deal with one other problem. <laughs> what am I going to do with what this comfort food has done to me? That's what happens when you try to get comfort. In a similar vein, in a similar vein, some people try to give comfort in diverse ways as well. They throw out the occasional cliche. You, you've heard this before. Time heals all wounds. Oh, you're going through a problem? Well, let me tell you this. Time heals all wounds. Does it really? Somebody once told me, you know what, time wounds all heals. H-E-E-L-S, you know. Well, I don't, you know. Here's another cliche. It can't get any worse. Oh, yes, it can. Just ask Job. Here's a good one. Hey, cheer up. <laughs> Boom, you know. <laughs> Right? That's, the way you, that's what you feel like. Hey, cheer up. Oh, yeah, come over here. I'll cheer you up, you know. How about, remember this one? Don't worry. Be happy, yeah. It was a song. We all sang it. I hated it. I really did. I just couldn't stand that song. Uh, my favorite and not very helpful, though, is get over it. You have a problem? Get over it. And so, neither food or foolishness. Because you see, most of the time when you say those things, it's foolish. So neither food or foolishness are good sources of comfort. What we find in verses 1 and 2 is that the Lord wants us to both get and to give comfort. He wants us to get and to give comfort. God commanded Isaiah to comfort his people. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says, your, says our God or your God. Speaking to Isaiah, comfort. The people need to get comfort. Now, it is significant to remember this, that God is the God of all comfort. God is the God of of all comfort. Second Corinthians chapter 1 verses 3 through 5 tell us that. Blessed be, Paul says, Blessed be the Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. You all see that? It's okay, you can respond when I stop to breathe. 
who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those. You see, we get comfort so that we might give comfort. That we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation, there's that word, consolation, comfort, also abounds through Christ. There it is again. Get and give. Get comfort. Give comfort. Now, it is also important to remember, and I'm going to use that word remember a lot today because I want you to remember these things. But it is also important to remember that this is also the nature of prophecy. It is the nature of prophecy to give comfort. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 3, Paul says this, But he who prophesies, you see the first couple of verses there in 1 Corinthians 14 is talking about, you know, those who speak in an unknown tongue, you know, may, may speak, you know, Stuff nobody understands, and you know how, how do you get anything out of that? Unless, there's, of course, there's interpretation, whatever. But anyway, you get to this verse, and he says, "But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and what comfort to men." The nature of prophecy, of giving forth God's word as well as telling forth God's word, is comfort. There is certainly one way of getting comfort. And that is by preparing for the coming of the Lord. That is what prophecy is doing for us. If we indeed understand that the Lord is coming again, that's comfort to us. You all understand that? It's comfort to us to know that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming again. And so that is definitely intended in Isaiah chapter 40. Remember now, we're not going to get there tonight, but in verse 3 it talks about prepare the way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. You see, to receive, to get comfort, we prepare for the Lord's coming. So, it is necessary to know that in chapters 1 through 39, doing just a little bit of more review here, but it's necessary to know that in chapters 1 through 39, Isaiah was addressing his own generation. He was addressing his own generation about the Assyrians and what was going to happen there in Jerusalem. While in chapter 40, or chapters 40 through 66, Isaiah is addressing a future generation of Jews because the prophet had been allowed to look far ahead to see Babylon destroying Jerusalem and taking the Jews in captivity. Chapter 39, verses 6 and 7. But what else did he see? And this again is important. He also saw God forgiving His people and delivering them from that captivity, returning them to Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple and restoring the nation. That is what Isaiah saw. He saw God forgiving His people and delivering them from that captivity, returning them to Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple, restoring the nation. There's another significant point, very significant point to make in regards to the distinction between the first and the second halves of the book of Isaiah. In, in the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, the chief world figure is Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. 
But in the last 27 chapters of Isaiah, get this, in the last 27 chapters of Isaiah, who is the key world leader that is mentioned? His name is Cyrus. Cyrus, king of Persia. Please understand that it is Cyrus, or it was Cyrus who defeated the Babylonians. Again, look at way down the road. It was Cyrus who defeated the Babylonians, and he would later issue a decree in 541 B.C. to allow the Jews to return to their land and rebuild the city and the temple. Now, turn to Ezra chapter 1. Ezra chapter 1. Ezra is before the Psalms. It is before Job. It's after Second Chronicles. It's before Nehemiah. Okay, Ezra. Turn there, Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Very important to see this. Now, Ezra and Nehemiah, of course, are, 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 are books written concerning what has happened after the captivity or soon, you know, soon to, to happen. Ezra chapter 1, verse 1 says, Now in the first year of who? Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, this is a very important point. The Lord stirred up the heart of Cyrus, the king of Persia, the spirit, I should say, of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he might make a prep, uh, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing saying, notice, writing, a decree, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me. And he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, who is among you of all his people. There's a question. Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. This is a pagan king declaring the God of Israel to be the God of all. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the freewill offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. So this happens. And this is what you have to remember. Isaiah wrote this prophecy before Babylon, or his prophecy, I should say. He wrote his prophecy before Babylon was a great world power and before Cyrus was even born. By the way, he even mentions his name. He calls him Cyrus. This is what, what baffles the mind of these liberal theologians who say, well, it just can't be that that, that that Isaiah who was writing way, way before that captivity could ever see the name. Well, yeah, he could if God is God. If God who has seen the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning knows everybody's name, he says, hey, this is his name. Cyrus, cool name. He writes it down. Because God gave it to him. That's how great our God is. 
That's why I wonder about the God of liberal theologians who call themselves Christians but don't believe in the God who can do that. Or a God who could bring forth a child from a virgin. Or a God who can raise his son from the dead. They don't believe it. Interesting. So Isaiah, along with the other prophets, remember Jeremiah is mentioned here in Ezra, but Isaiah, along with the other prophets, by the inspiration of God, saw the future course of world events, and in all of this was able to offer the comfort necessary for God's people to lift their heads in the midst of judgment and suffering. It was, in fact, the proclamation of pardon. It was the proclamation of pardon, Isaiah 40, verses 1 and 2. Let's look at it again. Comfort, yes, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The nation of Judah had rebelled greatly against God in their idolatry and immorality, in their injustice and their lack of sensitivity toward the Lord's prophets and messengers. Uh, They were just a rebellious people, but they were still His people. And He loved them greatly. He loved His people greatly. Even from the very beginning He loved them. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 11. It's a wonderful passage of Scripture. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6 says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for Himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. But look at verse 7. The Lord did not set His love on you, nor chose you, or, uh, nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all people. But because the Lord loves you, and because He would keep the oath which He swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Therefore now that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love Him and keep His commandments, and He repays those who hate Him to their face to destroy them, He will not be slack with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Boy, what a warning that is to people who hate God. Therefore you shall keep the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments, which I command you today to observe them. You'll notice that even with God's love comes responsibility on our part to obey, to observe his commandments. Remember Jesus' words to his disciples. What did Jesus say to them? If you love me, keep my commandments. John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, (laughs) keep my commandments. I'd say I'd like for you to see it. If you love me, keep my commandments. Matthew 22, verse 36. Someone came to Jesus, a Pharisee, said to him, Teacher, which is the great commandment in in the law? 
And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. You shall love the Lord your God, and you shall love one another. You shall love your neighbor. On these two commandments hang not only the ten, but all the law, all the prophets. And though the Lord would chasten his people, though the Lord would chasten his people, he would never forsake them. I've always loved that verse. It tells us that he will never leave us nor forsake us. God will never leave us. He's faithful. He's committed to us. And we're thankful that he's God and able to be that faithful to us because we're not always that faithful, are we? We make mistakes. We we veer. We stumble from time to time. We fall. We don't want to. We really don't want to. But God is faithful. Oftentimes we are chastened, but in that chastening is the love of God. I want you to consider verse 2 of Isaiah 40. Speak comfort to Jerusalem. He says to Isaiah, give comfort now. You get comfort, you give comfort. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now let's break it down a little bit. The phrase, speak comfort here, which, by the way, the word comfort in, in, uh, in verse 2 is different from the word comfort in, in the Hebrew than the one we saw in verse 1. They're two different words. But this word, speak comfort here, literally says speak tenderly and even more literally says speak to the heart. Speak to the heart of Jerusalem. The comfort comes with tender, kind words that are spoken directly to the heart, such as, such as a young man may do to woo, to persuade, to, to encourage his girl. To speak to the heart. This was a term that, that was used in a story in Genesis chapter 34. I just want to read the verse because in that verse is that same word. Even though the story is, 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 is very, uh, it's, it's a pretty rough story. It's, uh, it's about this Shechem who actually goes and, and, and takes Diana, the daughter of Jacob, and, and, and rapes her, you know. But <clears throat> actually, you know, this has happened. But then we're told in verse 3, his soul, Shechem's soul, was, was strongly attracted to Dinah. I should say Dinah. I didn't say Dinah. Dinah, the, the daughter of Jacob. And he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. That spoke kindly is the same word. Speak to the heart. Of course, he got in trouble because of what he did. And then, of course, you know, well, you know the story. You can read it later. If you want. 
point of the matter is that same word is there, speaking kindly, speaking to the heart. And this is how God comes to us. He speaks to our hearts. He speaks tenderly to us with comfort. So getting back to our text, then the Lord, <clears throat> what the Lord is doing is giving good news through His prophet Isaiah to His people. What is that good news? This is great news. The news is her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. Now remember that at the time that Isaiah spoke this, the battle was still threatening. The battle was still threatening. We have to consider one aspect of the nature of the prophetic word here. Even when armies may stand against his people as far as God is concerned, her warfare is over. If God is on our side... You better watch out. This was and is indeed comforting. And we're talking not about the threatening of, of a, the Assyrian army. We are looking down at Babylon. God has said, I will win your battle. God has said, I will forgive your sin. It's a heavy thought. It is in the same sense that God speaks to us as well. Romans chapter 8. Think of what God says to us. When we know who we are, what we are, what we do, and what we need to do. Romans 8.35 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Don't you just love this passage of Scripture? I'll tell you what, if you never read it, read it right now. And then love it. And then give thanks to God for it. Because it says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Shall any of these things separate us from the love of Christ? As it is written... For your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet, notice verse 37, and this is the key verse here. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. We are more than conquerors. I mean, you can be a conqueror or you can be more than a conqueror. We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life... I mean, that's enough right there. You're either alive or you're dead, right? So neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present nor things to come, nor height, nor death, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Isn't that a wonderful comfort? to know what Christ has done for us already because He loved us, that God, what God has done for us by sending His only begotten Son to die for us, to shed His blood that we might be forgiven? Do you see how wonderful this is to know as believers in Jesus Christ? Think about what John says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, when he says, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because He who is in you is greater than He who is in this world. We are overcomers because of Jesus Christ. We may not always feel like that. We may not always experience that. We may experience a lot of tumbles and stumbles along the way. But you are of God, little children. 
and have overcome them because He who is in you is greater than He who is in the world. Speaking of those actually who don't speak the truth. So when you come down to, his, to, to Judah here in, in this particular passage of, of, of Isaiah, not only is her warfare ended, but her iniquity is pardoned. At the time that Isaiah received this prophecy, listen, Judah and Jerusalem were well aware of their sin. Mainly because Isaiah was sure to make them aware of it. Remember chapters 1 through 39. He made them very aware of their sin. Yet he speaks of a day. He speaks of a day when comfort can be offered because her iniquity is forgiven. But on top of it all, the sin would be completely paid for. Look at it again. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And people are, you know, sometimes misinterpret what this is saying. That they have received double punishment. This is what some people think. But how does that fit in with the comfort that is being given to us in the first word of this passage? It doesn't fit, does it? Sins are, uh, warfare's ended, sins are forgiven, and she's received all the punishment. There's no comfort in that. That I can see. Let's understand this double. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Double does not suggest that the Lord's correction is unfair. Because we know that He is merciful even in His punishments. Let me say that again. Double does not suggest that the Lord's correction is unfair because we know that He is merciful even in His punishments. Going back to Ezra for just a moment. Ezra in chapter 9 prays before God. It's a long prayer, and you can read it yourself later. But Ezra 9, verse 13, he says something very important. He says in verse 13, And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, notice what he says here, Since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us such deliverance as this. Do you see that? Since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve. But in other words, they deserved even greater punishment than God had given them. That is what, I, that is what Ezra is saying here. You've given us less than we deserve. We deserve a lot worse, Lord, for the sins that we've committed. What we find in Isaiah is that God chastened them in an equivalent measure to what they had done, but understand this. There is a Jewish legal procedure that we need to understand. A Jewish legal procedure. When there was indebtedness or a mortgage on a house in Israel, the fact was written on a paper, a legal document. And it was put on the doorpost 
to make public the announcement of the debt. You got the picture? There's indebtedness, there's a mortgage, and on a piece of paper it was nailed to that house or the doorpost of the house to make public announcement of the debt. Another copy was, was kept by the person who held the mortgage. There's two documents. One on the doorpost. One on the, uh, held by the one who, hold, who, who had the, uh, the mortgage. So when the debt itself was paid, the second copy was then nailed over the first on the doorpost so that everyone could see that the debt was paid in full. Are you getting a picture here? Are you getting the picture? This is the meaning of receiving double. For she has received double. What it means is the debt was paid in full. The debt was paid in full. Turn to Colossians chapter 2. And Paul says to us in verse 13, And you, being dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, a handwriting of requirements, what was that? The debt. And He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Double. Nailed it to the doorpost. Remember the Passover? Remember the sacrifice? You remember where the blood was applied? The blood was applied to the doorposts. At the top of the doorpost, the lintel, and the two side posts. At the bottom, there was a, a, a kind of a basin at the bottom of the door. The blood was poured out. The head, the hands, the feet of Jesus. Our debt was sin. The payment is always the same. It's death. Do you know that the the word mortgage, by the way, the word mortgage, interesting thing, the word mortgage comes from a French word. And within the word mortgage itself, it is not spelled M-O-R-G-A-G-E. It is spelled M-O-R-T-G-A-G-E. Why? Because the first four letters, M-O-R-T, stands for death. Muerto. Mort. Gitch. The debt. Our debt was sin. 
And the payment is always the same. Romans 6, 23, Paul says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Isn't it all making sense now? Isn't it all just kind of coming together and bringing some insight to what God has done for us? Our iniquity is never pardoned. Listen. Our iniquity is never pardoned because God just decides to let us off the hook. That would make the Lord an unrighteous and wicked judge, which of course He could never be. But under the new covenant, under the new covenant, the new testament as it were, the new testimony, It isn't we who have received from the Lord's hand double for all our sins. Listen carefully. It isn't we who have received from the Lord's hand double for all our sins. It is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, our sin bearer, who received the cup of wrath and bore upon Himself our sins on the cross. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, Verses 21 through 25, for to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Notice, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. That's Isaiah 53. For you were like sheep going astray but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Is this not our comfort? Is this not the comfort that God has given to us when we begin the, the very first book of the, of the New Testament in Matthew chapter 1 and we learn that there in Matthew chapter 1 we're given the name of Jesus, which means what? God saving us from our sin. God is salvation. That is what the name Yeshua means. That is our comfort. And though we haven't seen the last page of our life, God has. And He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. When you stumble, I'll pick you up. When you fall, I'll lift you up. And I'll place you back on a solid footing. And I'll establish your steps. Because I love you. And because my son died for you. Paid the penalty paid the price, paid the mortgage 
And so you've received double for your sins. We get comfort when we prepare for His coming as we shall continue to see next time. Comfort, yes. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Get comfort from knowing what Christ has done for you. Give comfort by telling people, listen, if you turn to Jesus Christ, if you trust Him, and if you believe that He died on the cross for your sins, and He shed His blood to forgive you of your sins, then believe this. Take His comfort. For it is a comfort that will last unto eternity. That is how far God sees in all of this. That is our comfort. The warfare is ended. You know what that means? We have shalom. We have peace. When peace has come, no more fighting. The war is over. Now it is important for us to maintain peace. It is important for us to know that our iniquity has been pardoned. The handwriting of requirements is nailed. And Jesus Christ is Lord. And He's coming again. Let's pray.